Hello, fabulous listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Old Bodies Outside. This is your host, Ryan Peterson. This episode's guest is Will Dobin. He is an American living in Adelaide, South Australia, and works at Charles Sturt University. For almost two decades, he has been working with adolescents in outdoor settings to improve well-being and mental health. He is the founder and director of True North Expeditions, which is a nonprofit program in Adelaide that provides adventure therapy expeditions and social work services for adolescents. Will's research interests include outdoor therapies, feedback-informed treatment, and qualitative research involving client voice. Also, he is a co-author of the book titled Solution-Focused Practice in Outdoor Therapy. I'm certainly a person who loves going on adventures, and so I'm very excited to talk with Will today. So, Will, it's an honor to have you on Old Bodies Outside. No, thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's a it's an absolute treat to be here, and I've already enjoyed talking with you before we hit the record button. So, I'm sure this is going to be really fun. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Well, why don't we just take it back to the start of how did you discover adventure therapy? I mean, this is something that I had never really heard about until I actually started getting into academia and whatnot, but I was unaware of it before that. So really, I had, a, I, had um, I grew up with a lot of difficult family context, uh, which is not worth getting into or picking that scab off at all. Um, but in, when I was about eight years old, my mom said, why, why don't you try summer camp? And I thought, no freaking way am I going to summer camp. And my mom said, you can go to summer camp and your best friend at elementary school is going to go with you. And I said, okay, I'll go with him then. That'll be great. And while driving to the airport to meet my friend to fly from Maryland to Vermont to go to summer camp, I learned that my friend had bailed and he wasn't going. And I cried the whole way to the airport. And then I got on the plane, though, and I went and I went to the camp director after my second day there, and I said, can I please call my mom? And he said, well, it's not really policy that you know kids can just call their mom whenever they want. And I called her and said, just leave me here, and I'll be fine. And uh, if you can extend my stay as long as possible, that will be fantastic. But so much, much of my summers were spent canoeing on lakes in you know the upper Northeast and um, around New England. And um, so I've, I've just, the outdoors was always a happy place for me to, um, I love canoeing, um, I love backpacking and hiking. And so as my teenage years were ongoingly difficult, I sat on numerous therapist couches. I, I say that I was couch surfed around many offices and I was a I was a good therapy participant and but I also when I realized you could work in a way that was outdoors it just I went I have to go get a social work degree right now and learn how to do this it just it made absolute sense to me and I never looked back and a, a kind of side story to that when I when I turned 18 I joined the volunteer fire department in Maryland and I really loved, I, I had this idea I wanted to help people, but I didn't really know how I would do that or 
what that would look like. So I was firefighting. I got my emergency medical technician certificate. I was working on the ambulance and doing all this stuff. And an opportunity came to teach wilderness search and rescue to at-risk youth. And when I went to the woods and started working with these young people that were removed from home, uh, you know, uh, sent away by their parents, all of this difficult context to figure out, I kind of thought to myself, I'd rather run into a burning building with these kids than half the firefighters that I work with. And I saw these young people who I think were very similar to me, but I, I saw them at their best. I didn't see the problems that these big files were sent to us with all the referral information and how messed up their family context was. I didn't see any of that. And it sort of just resonated with me that that's who I was at summer camp. I was a stellar camper, but this horrible school student. And I went, maybe we can find clues about people and give them these wonderful experiences in the outdoors. Um, and I also think there was something very real about sleeping under the stars. I mean, it sounds awkward to say sleeping with your clients. I don't mean it like that. But being just out there in the rain, in the mud, amongst the wild all together. I think there's something very brave as a clinician to be out there with your clients. Like you, you, there's no space to be fake will when you're out there. It's, it's all for real. So there was something that was much less, um, something that was much more real than um, the counseling room for me. And so in one, in one essence, yes, I push my hobbies onto my clients, but the other side is I think they get a better, a better me as the therapist with that as well. Yeah, it sounds like sleeping under the stars out there, hanging out every single second. I mean, you can't get away from them. It seems authentic. It seems sincere. Yeah, and, and when you go back to, and not to get into the weeds of how does therapy work, but you go back to Carl Rogers and these core conditions, what is actually necessary for therapy to work? Experiencing your therapist as a genuine person is very important. And that relationship, whether it's inside or outside, has to feel real. And it has to be an emotionally charged, real relationship. That, the, and, and I work with teenagers. This stuff works with all different clientele. But teenagers are amazingly awesome at smelling bullcrap. And so they will, they will smell you out in a second if you're not real and authentic. So it, in there's also a big part of it that's kind of a challenge for the worker to be real and there and authentic. That whole experience is also, it, it puts a big amount of pressure on us to be good practitioners. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what's the longest you've been out on an adventure therapy trip and with doing everything that goes into it with adventuring, but also the therapy, uh, helping with well-being. I mean, is, does it take, do you come back exhausted and just like, but gratified, gratified, exhausted? Yeah, so the longest I've been at is 50 to 60 days on a, on a program. And this, this did end a long-term relationship because I'm not, I'm never exhausted when I'm out there. So I was working two weeks on, two weeks off and someone got sick and I picked up all their shifts on the two weeks off that I was wow. supposed to have. 
it uh, you can see that putting quite a strain on a on a a young relationship. But it's I I go back to this idea of kind of summer camp and and funny context. We teach social work intensives at our university here in Australia. So we have two hundred students around for two weeks at a time. And I just got back from one of these two weeks ago, and all the staff are saying, "Aren't you exhausted?" And I just went, "No." This is awesome. I love being on campus, having people around, and this vibrant sort of community, and going out and seeing the town with all these wonderful people. It's amazing. When I get home, yes, I am exhausted, and and it doesn't hit me until I actually turn off. Um, but a funny thing about that, about turning off with our program, we built in sort of we're on expedition for two weeks. And we built in a visit to a beach house at the end of it, so kind of mimicking coming home. So we're kind of in a in an urban-ish environment, and all the staff turn off too. Everybody turns off because it's like we're not on anymore. So it's actually a great thing to consider how we actually return from wonderful experiences in the outdoors. How do we transition that learning back to? the home environment because we can switch off which our brain is probably telling us to do but also have we taken have we really integrated that experience back to a more normal whatever that means living environment um, so i do get exhausted but only when i get home and um, and that's where having supportive family that know you don't want to talk about that whole experience again for at least two days so you can really <laughs> unpack and sit there and not talk and not be in the spotlight that sort of stuff yeah yeah well i gotta say when i go i'll go out and do like say 10 nights of backpacking i have a hard time transitioning back to um my day-to-day -day rhythms actually and like just like all the interactions i have i've been out with solitude i've been out in solitude i've had a good escape or i've been with one other person but i always have a hard time transitioning back and it actually takes me I'm not like maybe exhausted because I've been, you know, pouring in and helping people, but more so I have a hard time transitioning. Um, but whatever about that, I actually also wanted to share, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, summer camps around the summer, but you, you, starting off with about your story about going to summer camp just got me really excited. So my mm. wife and I are doing something new this summer. Um, last two summers, we sent our kids to Camp Birchwood uh, up in northern Minnesota, and it was they did two-week stints. And last summer, we picked them up, and they loved it to the point that we lived about eight hours from the drop-off point, and they were crying on the way home because they had such a good time. They mm -hmm. wanted to stay. So this summer, our kids, who um, are 11 and 12, are going to be going out doing a month-long uh, camp trip up in northern Minnesota. And we just um, signed some paperwork for my stepson to canoe into Canada and go camp for the night in yeah. Canada. And oh gosh, I'm like, man, I wish I did that when I was your age. I, I, I know. I, I look back at summer camp and I just think, what a treat of an experience that 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 I got. And and I'm so I I, re, I remember that car ride to the airport and my tears going. I'm not going to know anybody here. And this is going to be terrible. And I'm just so grateful that my mom, that, that she stuck with it to let me go. Because I went for two weeks my, my first time. I got it extended till three. So that was the end of the camp season. And I went eight weeks every year. 
the the rest Whoa. of when I was when I was old enough to do it. Yeah, um, wow, and they did things, and it was so interesting. They did things like um, every week there was a a mandatory backpacking or overnight canoeing trip. So we were away Wednesday to Thursday, something like that. And later on in the years, they made that voluntary, and I still did all of them. I was like, I want to go and do that mountain and go do that canoe trip. So there was something, I don't know, in my psychology or my DNA that was always about getting out and going and playing outside and, and doing something. And um, yeah, so I think it's just such a wonderful, um, a wonderful experience that, that made, when I, when I talk in Australia, summer camp is not, it's not really part of the culture here. So, and, and, and that's probably because it's way too hot in our summer. But I think about um, my expeditions for my work are two weeks and people go, wow, that's a really long time. And I always go, my gosh, this is so short. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, this is not long enough. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it is it's such an amazing opportunity. And when I mean, it's not for everybody, of course, and, and we don't want to force everyone to have to experience the same thing. But when it lands and it lands well, my gosh, what a what an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. No, we're really excited for the kids. We drop them off mid-June and then we'll hmm. see them back in mid-July. Oh, man, it's I can't wait to drop them off. But I also can't wait to pick them up and hear all about I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. Why don't we hear a little bit more about adventure therapy? I personally don't know much about adventure therapy. I, I, I do some research on um, uh, experiential research on conservation, actually, but I don't know much about adventure therapy. So what's adventure therapy about? What is it? Sure. So uh, as I said before we hit the record button, this is probably the most contentious question that you could ask me. And I don't want to maintain position of holding the dominant narrative about what is or is not adventure therapy. In essence, I kind of believe that the word adventure before the therapy is, is not the greatest word. Um, I, I kind of think the, because I think every, every therapist is an adventure therapist because we meet someone, we have no idea where it's going. That's the adventure. But yeah. I also think it's misleading because if everyone listening closes their eyes and thinks what they think of the word adventure, they're probably going to think whitewater rafting, scaling a cliff, Alex Honnold free soloing El Capitan, all these things that they go, I can't do that. So really, when I think of adventure therapy, what I think is there's there's it's it's a therapy, you know, a psychotherapy of some sort with some sort of active bodily engagement with an experiential process that it can be gardening, it can be surfing. Um, we're seeing a huge rise in surf therapy with veterans, people living with disabilities. We're seeing all these different um, kind of activity-based therapies. And so adventure doesn't necessarily mean going out to the, to the woods for weeks on end. It can be a walk and talk session uh, in a park. It can be all these different things. So I think it's adventure therapy is a term that I like to think of as a huge circus tent that all of us can get under to talk about something we kind of don't agree on anything about, but we sort of are all together with this kind of idea that 
maybe getting out and doing something is a good way to to work with people that we don't necessarily have to sit on the couch and to caveat that about therapy is we're seeing an awesome rise in telehealth right and this is a good this is a good link to the past three years and, and this this uh, sort of pandemic I don't know if you've heard about that we all went through that was absolutely horrible, I've heard of it. Right? <laughs> yeah so so you've got you 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 have this pandemic and all clinicians around the world were told okay you can you can all work online now and so there's there's been regulations and rules internationally about who can work on the phone or by zoom all these things but they were also told and you can go outside if you want to sit on a park bench, if you want to go for a walk with your client. Now, people have been doing this for, for decades anyway, but we saw this huge rise in telehealth, and which is great. That's another way to engage people who could benefit from a therapeutic service. Not everyone wants to walk into a clinic. Um, not everyone wants a one-hour session. Some people might want a 15-minute phone call. That's awesome. But some people might also want a six-hour hike or to sit in a garden with someone or to um, play music with someone I see the guitars behind you so I think of adventure therapy as not a other than any therapy but just using the going outside for the benefit of the therapeutic interaction and bringing in some active bodily engagement might just be another key to working with people in, in the mental health space. Um, it doesn't have to be better than or different. It probably is just exactly the same, just a different way to work. Yeah, well, I, I like that you, 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 know, you, you talked about that. Get outdoors, have some bodily engagement. And I think starting right there with those two criteria, it seems like there's also just a sense of accomplishment for getting outside and maybe have a little bodily engagement. I mean, um, that's something that sometimes can be intimidating. Well, absolutely. And just think, I mean, as, as two academics here, we can acknowledge that almost all psychotherapy theory is from the neck up. It's all about the brain. It is all about talking. It is about listening. And so think about how much we can change by being a whole body and an embodied experience of, of therapy. And so you said about, you know, kind of this idea of success and mastery. And this is, it's really interesting if you, if you end up, and this is not to get into the weeds of academia, but if you read old outward bound literature, so old outdoor education sort of stuff, it was all about giving people problems to solve. And I don't think we should prescribe problems to people, but giving them tasks that we facilitate in a way that they will succeed at them. And so outward bound literature was all about success and mastery. Now, what's interesting is we've kind of forgotten where that term came from. In one of the, the first mention of success and mastery together as a term is at a psychotherapy adolescent conference in the 1930s. So oh, wow. you have this idea of we've got to stop talking about problems and giving young people experiences where they experience success and mastery. So what, what that lends itself to can be problematic. Do you have to successfully rock climb to the top of the climb? No. If you say no, that's enough. 
can the facilitator actually facilitate a conversation with the client about what was it like to say no? What was it like to have a sense of agency? Um, and so you can, if the idea is about success and mastery, you can do that anywhere. And so a lot of old school psychotherapy research from the, from the 60s is you can give people problem solving tasks that they succeed at that have nothing to do with the problem that brought them to therapy. And it can actually increase their sense of agency, their, their sense of self-control. And so that can lead them to feel energized to solve many of the issues that brought them to therapy in the first place. So I think the outdoors is kind of the outdoor therapy session, the adventure is really just a metaphor for the client being their best. And then they can apply that how they want to their life outside of the therapy session. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And um, you, you got me thinking about, and this is probably a word that, well, it's two words that comes up maybe in adventure therapy. I don't know, but I was sure. thinking of uh, self-efficacy um, sure. and like the success and mastery. Wasn't that studied by like a scientist named Bandera or something like that? Do, I don't yes. know if that rings a bell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, when we, when we think of self-efficacy, it's really interesting and, you brought up the solution-focused book um, that I wrote with my, my dear friend, Stefan. And he was talking about um, this notion of, as, as we're kind of, solution-focused is ingrained in us. I don't think it's better than anything else. It's just my, the way I think about things. One of the things we do in solution-focused therapy, classic, so imagine client comes in, sits on the couch, is we might ask them, about exceptions to the problem, about you know when was a time you had the urge to self-harm, but you didn't? When was a time you, you, you noticed yourself getting angry, but you kind of reg did some regulation? So you're trying to find solutions the client already has. In the outdoors, one of the things Stefan taught me, and I love this so much, is what if your session is an exception to the problem? What if you give your client problem-free time? then you have so much evidence when the client says i got you know i got too angry or i was in a really dark place over the over the week before i saw you again you have all this evidence of but they did have a time with you that you saw them be at their best and so when you can keep showing the client all their capabilities and resources and everything that they that that makes them so wonderful you it, it becomes this wonderful way to work with people that you're not really you don't have to be interested in 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 all their limitations you know we, we call these the killer d's their disabilities diagnosis disorders deficiencies um, deficits and we can see all these things that make them so capable because at the end of the day no one's actively trying to make their life worse so it's, it's amazing to work with people this way. And I think that mindset lets people from all different backgrounds be seen and doing things together in a very real way. Of course, no therapist in the world can reduce the power differential of I'm the helper, someone else is the helped. We'll never get rid of that. But at the same time, doing, doing things together where they can see how you react when you get rained on 
and then we can see how they react when they get rained on. And an example I use all the time is, you know, we don't bring a match or a lighter out into the out, out into the field when we're out in the woods. And I see young people who are referred for ADHD. They have no patience. They are terror in the classroom. They they don't sit still. They're constantly tapping. I am just describing myself entirely. And they sit in the rain and spark a fire for an hour. And it and they just sit there and keep going. And you go, here's evidence that we can help set up a scenario where they do sit still and they do all these things that we describe as problematic. And I've watched them do it. So sometimes when we're when whether it's outdoors or in a dance studio or in a recording studio with a guitar uh, in a garden any of these places we should really be thinking about how can we make the counseling setting a place for people to be their best so that means a place that's a safe place but also a brave place where they can explore themselves and be out there and be wild and be um you know um to, to be out there putting themselves out there. So I, I think the the space that the outdoors has, and I'm I'm I feel like I'm doing a sales pitch, but it's that's where I think I, I see the best of, of my clients. Yeah, and, and helping them be their best self. Like I, I liked how you know earlier you talked about with, with rock, rock climbing, if they have the agency and say, hey, like, you know, like I don't need to go to the top to do that. Like I can give it a try or whatever. But you know, having mm-hmm the ability to have some agency and have some confidence in your agency. But I, I like that there's not just like the simplistic approach of let's get after this problem, let's get after this problem, but let's help you be your best self. It seems more holistic. Oh, totally. And and it's something I'm constantly, <clears throat> my wife will say this, everyone that's worked with me will say this, that I always need a logistics manager because I'm constantly creating new ideas of how to adapt our program. And then Nothing will get done because I just sit in the creative thinking of overthinking this stuff. Um, but it's so interesting. Like you think about rock climbing. And so we will take young people to a high ropes course. It's really fun. It's easy. It's pretty self-directed. But some people don't want to be off the ground. It's scary. Heights are scary no matter what anyone says. That's why we wear harnesses. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's brutal regardless. So you... You take people, and then when someone says no, what happens in so much classic adventure programming is there's nothing else for that client to do. So they have to sit while everyone else looks like they're having fun on a high ropes course climbing this and that. So one of the things we started doing is we started saying with one of my staff, uh, Catherine, she's amazing, is she's an incredible climber. And she would say to the group, I don't really like heights. So I'll sit over here and I've got all this nature art stuff activities to do. So if no one wants to climb, you don't have to. And you make that choice so available that clients can with dignity say no to something where quite often if it's in the program and it's scheduled, what tends to happen is if you say no, you either get coerced into participating or you have to sit and be the loner outside of the group not participating so giving clients choice and i'll get a little bit into the weeds of like like trauma and and this sort of stuff that 
if trauma is something that happens when someone's agency and choice was taken away from them, how different is it to get, make therapy an arena for people to make dignified choices and be 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 um, uh, be privileged to make that make that choice? So it's so funny that just thinking about success and mastery, I think, isn't about actually succeeding or mastering anything. It's about the mastery within oneself that we can feel that we have uh, um, the ability to to um, overcome some some adversity that we experience. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I think it's it's so yeah. Doing things together has this wonderful opportunity to to really observe your client, but also to help facilitate that experience. And, I, and I'll I'll say a funny story about this. I, I was I was teaching last night and so i went to norway and i and i got to be a participant observer on a wilderness therapy program there so these were young people who showed up at the at the hospital and the hospital said we can do talk therapy or you can go to the woods and most choose talk therapy these ones chose the woods so we're out on a week-long expedition and one day, the, the leader wakes up and says, you know, who would like to hike today and who would like to stay at camp? And I thought, who the heck is going to want to go hiking when the opportunity is, you know, you also being afforded the opportunity not to go hiking. And we, I said, I would like to see snow. I had done a, a big chunk of time in Australia, and so I hadn't seen snow in a while. And it was summer in Norway, and there was still snow on top of the mountains. And it was me the female participants and a female social worker and off we went all the all the males stayed at camp so we head up this mountain and we're just hiking slowly we stop for lunch we eat some chocolate we're having fun and joking around we got to snow we're throwing snowballs at each other it was so fun and this one one participant she said i i i don't want to hike anymore i'm ready to go back to camp and i said no problem i will take you back to camp that's absolutely cool and the other participants went on, went on hiking up the mountain. They wanted to reach the summit. And I could sense this, a little bit of apprehension. And I said, you sure you're ready to go back to camp? And, and she said to me, well, I, I just feel like a burden. I'm too slow. I'm too out of shape. I, I, I don't, I'm slowing down the group. And here I am in Norway, a country where I do not speak the the native language, you know, and they all speak English better than I do. And I have no map, no compass, no first aid kit, no phone service, uh, nothing that would be good outdoor practice. All I can see is down a valley and see where our campfire is. That's all, that's all I got. And I said, well, screw that. We can just hike at our own pace. And I said, why don't we just set a, my timer for 10 minutes and We'll see what happens. So we snoozed that for two hours as we kept climbing this mountain at, at her pace. And we turned around, and there was a rainbow beneath us over the valley. And it was just this wonderful experience. And she said in, in group in, around the fire group therapy time that night, she said, it was so important. I'd never been around a male who didn't try to tell me how to be and what to do. Wow. which is really powerful. I had no clinical uh, um, 
what's the word here? Um, I wasn't, I wasn't work. I was a researcher. I was just there to be a part of a group. I wasn't the clinician. I wasn't doing, I wasn't trying. I had no vested interest in the outcome professionally. Of course, being with a group of young people, everyone's working for their best interest. But what I thought when, when I reflect on that experience is how much we can overthink therapy and how much when we don't, we, when we really, really focus on what is the client experiencing in our work, the adventure was, was what she said around the fire that night. The adventure was this whole idea of, of what a man is, how men can interact with this person, um, how, how she can safely interact with nice people in a safe place where I was feeling the whole time, I don't have a first aid kit, I don't have a phone, what happens when this goes horrible, I'm alone with a female client, that's a big no-no. A lot of times I'm sitting there going, oh, this is terrible. And she's thinking the exact opposite to me. And it wouldn't have happened if we did, if if I could have put the stop on that experience. So it's kind of the adventure is really just being out there with your client and really giving them the chance to make meaning from that experience of, of what that feels like. Um, so I think it's it's amazing that the that experience of success and mastery and making meaning from the experience of being outdoors. And then you add all the, the benefits of how people can, you know, stress reduction, restoration, all these things that just can naturally happen from being outside. Um, so uh, I went on a tangent with that story. Sorry. <laughs> oh, Phil, that was fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I love that, that with that story, the, the compassion that was brought and the avoidance of introducing your own personal agenda. Uh, because mm. I think that would have just, you know, gone right back to how she had perceived being around males and men. Um, mm. but I think that, you know, like allowing, bringing that level of compassion, allowing people to be themselves and be comfortable being themselves and to experience that that's gotta be huge. Well, absolutely. And, and it's interesting when you get into the, the therapy mindset, I added this story in my, in my PhD thesis. And one of my reviewers said, I think you should have explored the feeling of feeling like a burden. And I went, why, why would we want to make that story larger? Like people feel like burdens all the time. Like it, it happens. It's normal life. We don't need to pathologize what this person was experiencing and instead give them this wonderful experience that is, it, I'll, I'll say this a different way. We, we live in trauma-informed times, right? And so we're talking about trauma a lot. It's on the news. If trauma is an experience that happens to someone and how the body, how the body reacts to these harmful experiences where choice was taken away, where their world is unpredictable, where they're not seen and they're not um, taken care of, shouldn't our work be the exact opposite of that where people have choice where people feel safe where people have positive experiences so if if negative experiences can harm people i think our work has to be positive experiences and 
part of that involves a little bit of bravery and and we think of this like navigating with a map and compass at night we have to be willing to embrace the unknown of what happens when we give people when we give clients a sense of control a sense of agency um, when we give that to them and they can make choices we have to embrace what happens when a client says no i don't want to do that we have to be prepared for these things but also be prepared for letting go of the experience so that the client can really have that sense of experience. And I'll give a, a, another kind of old school example of this. We have these ideas of broad adventure, narrow adventure. Skydiving is a serious adventure, but the most time, the first, for the most part, the first time people do this, you're strapped to the person who has all the control. So it's a narrow adventure. You don't actually get any mastery from skydiving. But except for, are you really sure you want to jump out of this airplane? Which I'm a nervous flyer. I'm sure that's horrifying. Broad adventure is like paddling a canoe. Eventually, you have to figure out how to paddle a canoe. Because you're going to go in circles, and it's going to be frustrating. And you and your canoe partner are going to want to beat each other up. It's horrible. So. We can, we can let go of the sense of this narrow adventure by just continuing to hike the mountain at that client's pace, laughing, doing it 10 minutes at a time, and letting that client say, 10 more minutes. Great, no worries. That was broad adventure. It doesn't have to be dangling from a harness. It can just be mastering something that we kind of think is also very easy, but when we're the guide, what's easy for us is not easy to define what's easy for another person. Yeah. Um, so I love that that experience to me, I just think it, it is uh, the personification of broad adventure that here we are on top of this mountain. And one of the most amazing things she did, she pulled out her phone and started playing Christian music. Now, I am not a religious person. I've, I think I've stepped inside a church three times in my life. And I said, what, what are you doing? Like in my mind, I was like, what's going on here? And she said, Will, this is my church. As we sat on a snowbank with a rainbow beneath us and, a, and this beautiful lake. And I went, oh my gosh. So all these, all these things that are in this, inside of this client all came out in this one experience. R spirituality, uh, a relationship with a with a with an older male that she hadn't experienced all of these things came out and i think it's so incredible how that how that can happen yeah yeah what 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 a, what a cathedral you're all at and just yeah, all those exactly. <laughs> yeah all those things that she experienced um now yeah. i was thinking about maybe uh, someone that is an adolescent coming through one of these programs and, you know, you're, you're thinking of this broad adventure aspect with them, um, mm -hmm. like canoeing, right. but what about like, if it's someone that's really there against all their willpower, they're kind of forced in the situation by parents or something like that. And they're going to be yeah. possibly in this example, they're very stubborn and whatnot. And I would think mm -hmm. having that broad adventure, kind of thinking would actually help someone like that to kind of, you know, start with some baby steps or even half baby steps and then make that a little bit bigger and a little bigger. Maybe, maybe that'd help. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about necessarily, but <laughs> I was okay. just thinking about, you know, if there was 
a stubborn, a very stubborn aspect, you know, and you're really trying to help this person out. How do you, how does that, how does that look? So we, we, when it comes to working with teenagers, and again, not all this work is teenager centric, but, but I tend to be, you, we do have a problem in the world of adventure therapy. And we see this, I mean, Paris Hilton was just on the Capitol building front lawn in Washington, DC talking about the stopping child abuse in residential treatment. And so we do have a problem of using the outdoors as the jail, as going, well, we'll just get them outside. And then they can't use drugs. They can't uh, have their phones. They don't have negative influencing friends. And then they'll get better. And this, I, I find this highly problematic in our, in our field because as a teenager myself, I never went to my mom and said, mom, I'd really like to go see another therapist, thanks. Can it please be an outdoor one? That never happened. So I think part of it is when it comes to any, any person, because we think of involuntary clients, meaning that the judge sent them or that um, uh, the, the, yeah, the courts have said, you have to go do this, or a boss saying, you need to go to therapy or you're gonna lose your job. So, but there's involuntary clients everywhere. Uh, 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 I'm thinking of like a couple and one partner says to the other, you need to go get help and stop drinking. That person doesn't think they have a problem per se, and they go and they're, they're reluctant. So this happens all the time with all ages. One of the things with, with teenagers is, and I, I actually think this with all, with all clients, the first thing we do when we go to, and, and I'll, I'll say this in kind of a sarcastic way, when we go to a restaurant, we walk in the door, and, and the, 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 the maitre d', the, the head of house, the, the, the front staff, whatever we call them, says, you know, how can I help you? And you say, I'm hungry, I'd like a table for two. And they say, how hungry are you? Is this hunger related to your mother? Is this related to some trauma you've, we do this lengthy assessment no restaurant on earth does that. They say, what do you want? Here are the choices. What do you want? So gotcha. with young people sitting down with them and, and avoiding this, these boring, lengthy assessments. I mean, we even call it an intake. It's a taking from the client, right? It's not even yeah. a giving. There's no giving from session one. And, and, and I know this sounds like hyperbole, but get this. In Australia, we have a national mental health use service. It's well-funded. It's everywhere in all these small towns. It's kind of like McDonald's. They plop these centers into all these communities, even, you know, indigenous communities where this, like with no indigenous consultation, thousands of kids come through these services and the average most common number of sessions that young people attend is one because they show up and they don't get anything that they think they want. So quite often the first session, especially with young people has to be a performance. You have to swear a little. You have to come across like you're not their parents. You have to come across like you're a different adult. Teenagers are biologically and evolutionarily trying to leave their parents. They're leaving the nest. They're learning how to fly. And if they don't have good adults around them, when they feel disconnected from parents, aunts, uncles, school teachers, sports coaches, all these things, um, when they get disconnected, 
they'll find the easiest place to find connection, which is often the drug community. The, 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 you know, the bar of entry is very low into feeling connected in that group. But so we want to hold on to our kids and keep them connected to other adults. Um, and so um, other people that they can feel safe to talk to, and sometimes that can be a therapist. I don't think it has to be, it can be anybody. Um, and you see a lot of young people um, in, in residential treatment, children removed for child protection reasons from their home, a lot of times the people they get most connected with are like th the cleaner, the landscaper, because those people tend to connect with people with no agenda, where mm -hmm. therapists want things to change. So we have to start with this mindset of connection way before correction. So the faster we move as the, as the worker, the more we leave the other person behind at the starting line. So, and this is really hard in substance use kind of stuff because we get told the substance is the problem. And so uh, a kind of, and I worked with a, um, a, a, a father about this. He came, he said, I, I, I have to, I have to uh, my drinking is getting in the way of, of how I'm raising my kids. And, and my wife is, you know, my partner is um, really hating my drinking and I just can't stop. And I said, well, what, what's the goal here? Is it just stopping this behavior? And he said, I want to be a good father. And then we started talking about what that looks like, really describing what does it mean to be a good father? How will you know you're a good father? What will your partner think of you as a good father? What will your kids notice? What will your dog notice? What will your friends notice? And it became less about this problem that he walked through the door with and all about what he wanted from the interaction. So young people are, are, I mean, we write about them like they're the hardest people to work with, but I really do believe we, we just haven't actually, we've taken these adult ideas and sort of gone, let's just apply this to teenagers. Um, so I think things like, moving around and thinking about how can we make some of the things that teenagers naturally do into these really fun, engaging ways, and then thinking about the, uh, um, thinking about the ways that they can uh, think this through, like even talking about leadership instead of, you know, emotional skills, just changing the language a little bit to make it not sort of that we always are living on planet mental health, that we're just being good people with each other and um, that sort of stuff. So um, teenagers are difficult, but I think the, the people I find um, that are so good at it are the ones that are really open and not trying to hold on to um, keeping that teenager in the box, but letting, letting us see them, how, um, how wonderful they can be. Gosh. Well, that was an amazing explanation, and it really made a lot of sense to me. But at the same time, I was thinking, like, how long did it take you to start really kind of seeing effective methods to work with young adults or young people? Um, I mean, how often did you have some failures, and they're like, okay, I need to adapt, I need to adapt, I need to adapt? I mean, maybe that still happens, like, you know, because every person is oh, unique. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think practitioners not talking about their failures is one of uh, it's a it's a huge shortcoming in our field 
that I think we and and I even though I highly recommend everyone keep listening to this podcast, an amazing podcast started by two marriage family therapy students when they were studying their master's degree called the Very Bad Therapy Podcast with Ben and Carrie. Incredible, hilarious. All they had to do was put out the feelers of hey, who's had a bad therapy experience? And the funny thing is there's some that are egregious, right? Like, you know, uh, changing the price of therapy without telling the client, like all these things that are horrible. But often a lot of the things that go wrong is like therapist took his shoes off and put his shoes on the couch, like with stinky socks. And it like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a lot of it's really hilarious if we actually open it up and can talk about it. But yeah, I mean, I, I really believe, and, and I have a story about this, that um, I had a client I was, I was working with a few years ago, and there is some early onset psychosis, and that is not my wheelhouse. And I was just, uh, I was getting very into outcome monitoring, which is, this is feedback-informed treatment. It's very nerdy. We don't have to go into it. But I was monitoring every session with a very easy outcome measure. Just like every time we go to the doctor, they take our blood pressure. You need a simple tool to figure out, is there something actually really going wrong here? And the client was telling me he's loving our sessions. But I'm watching this outcome rating slowly go down. And the mother was a mental health nurse. And I called her and said, I think we need to try something different. This is, I, I'm, I'm not being effective here. Even though he came every session. And what the data shows, which is really interesting, is by about session three, if the client isn't experiencing, and this is their subjective experience, if they aren't experiencing benefit from the therapy, it's about 90% unlikely to happen from session three. So wow. think about how long we, and that doesn't mean therapy can't help you. It means it's time for that clinician to take charge and make changes. So what I said, I sat with this young young uh, this young guy and his and his mom and i said i think what we should do is try a different worker and he was rightfully upset he, he said but i like seeing you i said you can always come back it, you know it's just i want to i really want to make sure this is useful so i sent him to my to my friend aaron who is the exact opposite to me suit and tie psychology clinic um, i heard him tell a 14 year old once that, the, that the, he was experiencing an emotional dichotomy. And I said, Aaron, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what this even means. The exact opposite clinician to me. And this, this young person loved it. And it was this huge, great outcome. And the mother, I wrote about this in the Solution Focus book. I did change it because this is sort of funny Australian culture. But the mother, I, I wrote that the mother sent me native flowers because um, I was like, I've got to make this right. I come home one day and there's a carton of beer on my front steps. And this is months later. And she said, basically, thank you for saving my child's life. Wow. And I get emotional with this story. But the yeah. thing is, all I did was get out of the way. And I, and I realized when I wasn't being helpful and I helped, I tried to get that person to someone else. And oddly enough, that mother was my biggest source of referrals in my organization and wow. she kept doing it even when i failed with her with her son and because it wasn't a failure it was we like we try to call that like failing successfully so 
if we're all open and honest about who we're not being effective with, instead of going, this is my client, we can start sharing. And Aaron and I share clients all the time and we continue wow. to do so. So it's one of those um, amazing things that we can actually, if we have that culture of being open and honest and transparent with each other, we don't have to be the best. In right. fact, if we really are honest with ourselves, being bad at our job is how we learn how to get better, but we have to acknowledge being bad at it at yeah. times. So, so do you, if, if you had to characterize an effective adventure therapist, would it be the open, honest, transparent, humble, adaptive? Um... Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause there's the side of it. We, we need technical skill. We got to know how to tie knots and how to camp and how to keep people safe and dry outside. But I also think the, one, of the, one of the greatest characteristics is the ability to adapt to, to who we're working with. And good outdoors, like it, it's so funny, all these metaphors, good outdoors people do this all the time when they're camping. Oh, it's raining. I'll put on my raincoat and rain pants and boots to stay dry. We, we have to have that mindset when we're doing the therapy. So this is the danger of the trend of manualizing everything. This is what the government wants. They want to know they're paying for therapy that's effective, that has a playbook, but people aren't a playbook. So it, when we have a manual, and I, and, and I think this is such an important metaphor for, for teaching and therapy, that if you have a manual, your offensive playbook, here's how I'm going to approach the classroom today. Here's how I'm going to approach my client. When they say this isn't working, we just flip the page to a different playbook. But what we're doing is we're starting from we already know what we need to do before meeting the person, where really figuring out what this person wants and tailoring it is really what the adventure is all about, which is why I kind of started this with everyone, anyone who sits on a therapist's couch is going on an adventure of their own, as is that therapist. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that was that's really amazing stuff, and you, you got me thinking about. So this past weekend, I went and saw uh, the movie Air. And I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw yeah. it a few weeks ago. Yeah. Okay, so do you remember the scene in it where he's talking about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, "I Have a Dream" speech, and they're mm -hmm. talking about how halfway through he was like, "Man, it's just not hitting with the crowd," and like he just like did a, a pivot mid-speech mm. and you know he had the structure of his speech going into it and he just saw it wasn't working and he adapted right there on the spot and then put it together i have a dream and then you know mm. sunny the main character in the movie when he's talking to michael jordan for the first time at nike headquarters That's he's right. he's he's assessing he could tell that the, the the purpose that they're trying to deliver is just not hitting with the jordans not mom not dad mm. not michael um, and then Sonny, you know, gets into it. It's like, man, like you're going to be a player that's so good. Your, your name's going to be known mm. for eternity. Um, and that adaptability right there. And, but while like really critically assessing to see like if the delivery is hitting or not, um, you got me thinking about that with the adaptability, totally you know, getting into the weeds I, and whatnot. <laughs> I have, I have an interesting story about this. I had a, uh, I was working about two hours uh, south of Adelaide in the, uh, this town called Victor Harbor, which is an old, it's a retirement area, but it was, it used to have industry. So you have retired population and 
unemployed young people. So lots of serious meth use. It's a really odd kind of difficult place. And so I was down there working at this alternative school and I've got this, this uh, young woman in, in, uh, client in front of me and she, she's saying, I don't want to be here. And we're sitting on these old couches and it is, I, I, I filmed all my sessions for two years and by the way, speaking of a humbling experience, watch yourself work. It's horrible. And, um, Will, and I, 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 I don't yeah. even listen to my own podcast because like, I know you can learn from it, but like, sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear myself talk. No, it's horrible, isn't it? And, <laughs> it and so I'm sitting, I have this session filmed and I'm sitting with this, it's these horrible old couches in a room without a window. And I'm seeing her and she's looking at me going, I don't want to do this. I've tried this before. I don't want to do this. And I'm going, well, let's try to figure out if we can do something different. And she goes, no, I, I, don't, I don't know why the principal is asking me to see you. Uh, it's like 30 minutes of excruciatingly bad therapy, right? It's horrible. And, she, and I said to her, okay, well, anyway, let's not talk about any of this. Like, when, what, are, what are things like when you feel somewhat okay? She's telling me how, how depressed she is. And, and she had horrific trauma. It was horrible. And um, she said, well, I, I know this guy, and he's teaching me to play the drums. Now, I, I am a drummer. My drum set is right there. I am, a, I am a good drummer. And I said, oh, can we go play drums? And she said, I guess. And we went, I would play guitar, she would play drums. That's what we did one hour every week. She was school captain in like the, the head of the school in six months. Oh. I don't think I did anything, but I was open to not forcing her to sit on the couch and talk to me. And a, a really great story of this young person. I love this. I, I woke up one day. I was about to start my drive down there. I was doing weekly consultation at the school. And I put on this Hawaiian shirt. And my wife said, why are you wearing that? And I said, well, I just thought I'd look different today, like at the school, like stand out, be goofy. And she was like, you're an idiot. As usual, I was like, yeah, I know. So I go to the school. And this client comes up to me. This is like a year later, right? She comes up to me and she goes, oh, my gosh. I, I knew you knew it was Idaho Day, you know, International Day Against Homophobia. And I said, oh, yeah, I totally, over my head, I had no idea. Because it's not really a, a, as big in Australia as it is in America. And Australia, you, you're always yesterday to me, right? Uh, you're Wednesday, I'm Thursday. So I, she, she got money together from the school and bought all these white t-shirts and was spray painting rainbow flags on them and gave a speech to everyone um, about how important it is to stand up against homophobia. And I was going, who is this person that last year was sitting next to me going, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to. And I go, so it's kind of not really about what we talk about, but if we open up the space for them to really feel like they belong, to feel like they're needed. And that's, with youth, that's one of the hardest things is that often many of our approaches to help them communicates that we don't love them. And instead, what if we communicate, you have a whole world that you're growing into that you have the ability to change, that you have the ability to make small change, big change, any change, and that's for you to decide. You're going to be the, 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 
the tool to make that world what it is. So I think a lot of times when we are open to, we don't have to do a certain empirically supported treatment for every mental health diagnosis because all of us know someone with, with an ADHD diagnosis, with a depression diagnosis, and we also know that when we look at them as a person, there's no two sunsets that are exactly the same, mm -hmm. and there's no two diagnoses that actually capture what this person, what their lived experience really is. Um, and there's a wonderful quote from this book called Connect. It came out a few years ago, and, it, and the quote is something like, um, the real way to connect is to acknowledge that um, I have no idea what you're actually going through and what you're actually experiencing. And when I approach you from not knowing, I can be really amazed in, in who you are and what you're going through by what I, by what I listen to. Um, so I think like, like you said in the, in the movie air, being able to go, Oh my gosh, this is failing and changing is better. And in, in that way, many times when we meet clients as a therapist, it's like a first date. It's incredibly awkward. <clears throat> and when you're working with a young person, they don't want to be there anyway. So it's like a blind date with someone who doesn't want to sit and talk to you. So you, you're really on stage being like, how can I make you actually give a crap about what we're going to do here? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, as you said, acknowledging that there's no way for you to know what they're going through. But I feel like that is fostering the act of sincerely, genuinely seeing them. And there's, I got to imagine, a lot of young people that have never felt seen. And just the that, act of that is huge. Well, we, we have a funny, I guess this is not funny at all, but we have an interesting, the mental health crisis, the way the language that we use around it is very interesting. So in health, in, in the world of like medical health, Almost every good health intervention is preventative. We put fluoride in the water to stop tooth decay. We have done an amazing job talking about the harms of, of smoking cigarettes, and that has led to reductions in smoking cigarettes. Um, so everything has to be preventative. And in mental health, everything is re reactionary. It's so... So in, in, in Scandinavia, for instance, I know we haven't talked a lot about the outdoors. In, in Finland, Norway, Sweden, they, they all have freedom to roam laws, which is everybody can go outside. You can camp anywhere you want. And so think about how a lot of our park services would think about this. They would say, well, what if they trash the park? Well, if we're teaching people from a young age to go outside and be outside, wouldn't most of the community have a better relationship with the outdoors and not trash the park. And so in, in, in Norway, for example, because I've been there a few times, I could be a tourist. I could go out into the woods in the middle of winter. Let's say I'm cross-country skiing and I get stuck in a blizzard and I call for help. I will not pay a cent for search and rescue fees because they want people to benefit from the outdoors and not be scared to go outside. Nice. So this is this freedom to roam idea. In mental health, because that, that's the idea of being preventative about this. Now, back to the point of mental health. In, in most of the Western countries, the leading cause of disability is depression. 
because we define disability as not going to work, not able to work. So the way we approach mental health is to get the person back to the factory, get them back to work. So hence, what's the easiest way to do that? Medication. I'm not anti or pro-medication. I'm, I'm absolutely an advocate for what works for whoever. I don't have a judgment either way. With young people, almost all their diagnoses come from what to how they're not fitting in to the mainstream culture. They don't sit still in the classroom, ADHD. They're not showing up to class, depression. They're, so we're reacting all the time. And this is the, the prevention, the, the old kind of metaphor is, we're pulling all these kids out of the water, but we're not at all talking about why they're getting thrown in. So we're, we're a lot of times, so you have young people in mainstream school misbehaving, acting out, not fitting in, but maybe loving music class. And we're not going, let's do more of what works instead of more of what isn't working. And a really funny example of this, speaking of feeling like a therapist that's a failure, first expedition we ran with True North, I managed to swing three kids on this trip, three young boys, me, outdoor adventure guide, three kids. And I went, oh, this is a failure. I'm not going to make any money. And this is horrible. And my business isn't sustainable. And we failed for the first time. It was amazing. It was so fun. It was, it, it felt like we were all on fire. It was wild. It was so good. And two weeks later, the mother of the first, uh, the first kid ever referred to us, the mother rings me and she says, Will, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm in Italy for a work trip. Can you please go to a school meeting about her son? And I said, oh my gosh. So I'm sitting in this meeting. Kid comes in, sits down next to me. And I said, what the heck is the problem? We're supposed to be like, this program works. Why am I in front of your principal right now? Like, and I get triggered as, whenever I walk in a high school, I get triggered. I'm like, huh, this is horrible, you know? So, uh, which is funny because now I work for university. I work for a different type of education institution. So principal comes in and says, Will, I'm, I'm glad he had such a good time camping with you. And I was like, wow, this is really condescending. And the kid, and he says, but we've had 15 behavior complaints in the last two weeks. And I look at the kid, I was like, what the heck? Like, we just worked on some stuff. You're already in trouble 15 times. They were all uniform violations. I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I'm really here talking about uniform violations. <coughs> Two weeks after that, the kid calls me and goes, yeah, I'm not going to go to high school anymore. And I said, no, 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 no. You have to go to high school. He goes, nah, I'm going to go work at the snow fields in Australia, which is not great mountains, of course. And I was like, oh my gosh. So the first kid ever referred to my private practice, you know, has dropped out of high school in a month of meeting me. <laughs> I was like, this is horrible. He's the leading coach for Australians Winter Olympic youth. No way. And we were all trying to cram him into high school. I believe everyone should, should probably complete high school. I'm not like pro drop out if you don't like it. That's not my, but he also 
really knew what he was going to do. So he travels the world with a group of like 10, 10 to 13 year olds teaching their high school stuff and snowboarding every day. Love it. And he's come back and done our expeditions as a, as a mentor and guide as well. And I go, look at this amazing outcome that actually had nothing to do with adventure, that had nothing to do with our work, but it was always in him to make that choice. And I bet in hindsight, he went back to high school and went, there's no chance in hell I'm ever going to fit in here. And what do you know, that high school tries to promote him in their newsletters. They're, oh. they're, they're star <laughs> dropout, you know? That's wild. But it, but it's, but it kind of gets back to this idea of, are we pathologizing and labeling people because they don't fit into the mainstream yeah. society? Or are we working with people to help them carve their own path to where they feel like they can fit in? Yeah. Um, I mean, I know, I know me from Washington, DC. I mean, I only caught the very tail end of Washington, DC's punk scene, but we have books. Um, I have a, a whole book about these, a whole bookshelf on DC punk rock, but we have books about women in punk rock. And that is not a, as calm. It's actually really emerging now, but that kind of alternative scene was incredibly inclusive to everybody and was all about straight edge ethics. Don't kill animals. Don't do drugs. Don't sexually assault people. And, you know, Bad Brains, one of the, uh, an amazing hardcore band that was a black punk band. Think of, and, and, and this is DC in the eighties. Like it, it's, it, I think of like the world that it can be when we embrace what engages young people, they will go find their sense of community. We naturally have the, um, we biologically are, are ingrained to belong and connect and we can give them great things to connect but we will fail if we keep homogenizing people into the classroom, into the couch talk therapy, into uh, you know, the, the, the medications, into this is how you have to work. And in, in that sense, I do think there is a bit of a blessing in disguise of what COVID taught us, which was we can actually be really adaptable. Like we, we will adapt and be strong and make way for everyone to, to work in different ways. And, and so I, I, I think the outdoors and, and, and working with young people in the outdoors is all about embracing that they're gonna teach us something that we, we, we can't know what we're gonna learn. Yeah, yeah, well, you touched on so much just now. Uh, I feel like oh, uh, you and I can go for another <laughs> few hours right now. Uh, first know. off, I need to put you and I into a a time machine and we're going to go back to like April 2019. Uh, we're going to yep. go to a geography conference in Washington, DC. It's called the Association of oh, the American Association of Geographers, AAG. And guess who was the guest speaker at this conference to talk about the geographies of punk rock? Ian MacKay. Ian MacKay. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. so cool. It was so cool. He was talking, he was at this geography conference to talk about the geographies of 80s punk rock before there was uh, the internet and before there's a lot of just mm. connections. And so he was like, man, like when we would travel to all these different regions of the country, we saw different takes on punk rock. But what we saw yeah. was the, the, the general thing that 
these mm-hmm. young people, they're, 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 they're engaged, they're carving out their own little area and they're not like assimilating and being pushed into something they don't want to do, but they're celebrating it in their own way. And it was, it was really cool yeah. to hear, really cool to hear. Um, another thing let is me, go for it, go for it. No, no, let me just something so amazing. I didn't, I only learned this recently, but a big thing was not, not having alcohol at, at shows at these punk rock shows in the, in the eighties in DC. And that became part of the culture. What's really interesting, you go back to DC in the 80s and 90s, you have the murder capital of the United States. Mm -hmm. So, and you have punk rock, which is inherently, people get into punk rock at, you know, middle school. So you have young kids wanting to go to shows, but their parents don't let them out at night. So what happened, and this is all Ian's crew, this is so incredible, they would find venues, any venue, Ethiopian restaurants, anything, that would let them have shows during the day. So the bar could stay closed. It could be all ages nice. and parents would let their kids out. So think like you have this perfect storm of this at the time, very unsafe city and young people being allowed to go to punk shows. Think about the context of this now. Many venues are 18 plus, let alone 21 plus, but it's a, it's a young, it's an adolescent gig that young people want to go to these shows. And we we aren't tailoring to making music venues a safe place for young people. Mm. That we can find a way to make a dive bar a safe place for a young person. So instead they go to the, the crappiest place, which tends to be the most unsafe right. because we're not bringing the music they're listening to to them, yeah. to that place. So it's amazing that this whole the DC punk rock thing emerged and all these lessons were learned about how to create a vibrant youth community that was safe for people. And they were talking about animal rights and not drinking and not doing drugs and, you know, in a punk rock community. And then it was safe for youth and parents supported it. Yeah. Incredible. But like parents don't have to like the music youth listen to. None of us like the music our kids listen to. So it's, it's natural. But I think it's so funny that um, I think about like all of this sort of relates to, to how I think about my work as well, that it has to be so cool for the young person to want to engage, but it can't appear like old guy Will is trying to be cool with the youth, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. which is why. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, gosh, it's going back in time thinking about minor threat. And I was just like thinking like, <laughs> what was the lyric? Like, don't drink, don't smoke, don't fuck. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. <laughs> but um, go- all about all yeah, about yeah. But like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's finding a way to let yourself flourish, be seen and go to a cool place and like not being told, you know, like, Hey, you got to do it this way. Like, Hey, I know how to do stuff. You know, I can do it this way. This is going to, this is what's going to work best for me. And and it's so funny. I I had a conversation with another, with another musician the other day. And, uh, and he said to me, you know, punk rock is, is a church. So we all pray at the altar to Ian McKay, but, but at the same time, he would hate that, <laughs> you know? So anyone who says, what's punk, what's not? That's acoustic. That's not punk enough. That's not heavy enough. That's not it at all. It's about that community. It's about everyone feeling like they have the place to 
to flourish. And I, I, I recorded a record at Inner Ear Studios years ago, which is where, um, you know, Fugazi Monitor, all them recorded. We recorded with wow. Donzi and Tar. It's an amazing experience. Wow. And Ian sold our record. I don't think he sold any of them, actually, but he said he would sell them. And I've sat in a lawn and just talked with that guy about our really? stupid pop punk bands. And, and I've ne- like, it was like, here's the godfather of, of punk music uh, in my city talking to me, this 19 year old who just recorded a crappy punk record, you know? So, so I, cool. it's, like, it's so funny. It's not about, do you fit in? Do you, do you not? It's really about, here's an entry into a nice place. And anyone who, who, who's going to DC, go, during the summer, and I might date myself with if this still happens. I believe it does. In D.C., summertime, outdoors, in Tenley Town, there's a place called Fort Reno. And Ian and his crew, they put on a free show every Wednesday night during the summer outside. And you will see four-year-olds. You will see 80-year-olds. You will see everyone. You won't see broken glass, broken bottles. It is all about this community coming together and cherishing independent music. And um, I just love that it's outside, not in a venue. You don't pay any money. You just show up and watch some music with your community. Um, yeah, with your and you'll community. see people from all, all backgrounds, all, all this and that. And I just go, this is, this is what punk rock is all about is, yeah. you know, sticking it to the man and, and bringing it out to everyone, no matter what. Um, yeah, oh, it's got that mindset behind it. You, you got me thinking mm-hmm. about when Rancid released the album and out come the wolves. And there were so many people being like, oh, that's yeah. not punk rock. That's not punk rock. Yeah. And like, yeah. <laughs> it's freaking Rancid. <laughs> I know. Yeah. There's, a, there's a mohawk on the cover, people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, gosh. You know, so I uh, get away from <laughs> the punk rock uh, digression yeah, here. Um, I, I got to wrap stuff up here. Uh, it's getting to be about uh, past 7 p.m. at my house. We got to do some dinner. But man, so I live in the state of Kansas and I'm part of a program here called Park Management and Conservation. We're, we're always looking to get our students outside, um, go have some fun and whatnot. And one of the things that we really struggle with a lot is we're an agriculture state. And what I mean by that is 98% of our land is private land. So we only have 2% of public land. And we got pockets of state parks here and there, but they're small pockets, um, but plenty of space to still use. But going back to that freedom to roam thing, um, mm-hmm. man, like I wish like we can chop some barbed wire up, um, which would release the people's cows, which isn't fair, but um, it would be nice to chop up some barbed wire and have some freedom to roam around Kansas. Do you know, do you know, like, um, well, I went to a conference in DeKalb, DeKalb, I don't know how to say it, Illinois. That's where barbed wire was invented, oddly mm. enough. And we had this adventure therapy conference. And I'm always amazed from, I've spent, we, we, we didn't really touch on this, but I've spent some time working and volunteering um, on indigenous land. Well, everything in Australia is indigenous lands, but um, um, in their communities. And I've been, uh, Greenland, Northern Canada, uh, you know, with Lakota populations in, in the US um, and across Australia uh, with, with Aboriginal peoples. And barbed wire is such a sad metaphor for, for our lands. And it's, it's a metaphor of how we've created boxes on people's homes that didn't have 
fenced in places. And I, the funny, I mean, it, it's so hard to change something when it, when it hasn't, it's so hard to work backwards from fencing, right? Because you go, what's going to get out if we cut these fences? In Norway, we're sitting at a campsite and you hear bells because people's sheep are just roaming the wilderness. Wow. <laughs> There's no fencing of these animals. It's, it's remarkable. But it's, I think it starts with young people and, and taking, I think the more fun experiences people have outside at a younger age, the less likely they are to be the people that leave broken glass and beer bottles and cigarette butts and their trash bags and these things that the park services are scared about happening. Um, also, it, you know, health insurance in the U.S. And, and, and the price of medical interventions, scare, that also is a limitation to people going outside. They're nervous about getting injured, not being able to go to work, getting injured, getting landed with a tens of thousand dollar medical bill. But it's a shame because I, I think there's a lot of research, and you'd probably know more about this than I, that the, the connection to the natural world and the outdoor environment reduces people's climate anxiety. It improves their ability to want to act and, and take care of the, the wonderful world that we get to live on and, and to make it a better place for us to live on. I think the, the hardest part about what's going on with the climate is we're not going to really see it as much as the island indigenous nations off of New Zealand are going to see it. Yeah. And Southeast Asia is going to see it. All these places that we don't have to think about in when we're in the Western world, that the, the global South is going to be hit by this way before Australia. And, and, and I mean, Australia, we're seeing it. We have horrible flooding. We had, we had horrible flooding this year, hundreds of miles away from me. But that river comes down and empties out into the ocean. And eventually, when all the flooding came out, it emptied out like millions and millions of freshwater fish into mm -hmm. the ocean, dead. Now we have beaches covered in dead fish like this. And we had the horrible fires. And what's, what's ironic, Australia has always had horrible fires. It's dry and hot here. But the, the many indigenous cultures here took care to do controlled burns. They would burn it before everything burnt out of control to make sure it was a flourishing forest. Right. So I think in a, in a lot of sense, we can, we can learn about leave no trace and these important ethics about the outdoors. But I also think engaging with our, our indigenous communities all around us can, can teach us about what it actually means to have a nature kinship that we don't have to go out and dominate the mountain or climb the rock. It, we can actually think about, I've got, I'll show you in this video, I've got this huge, uh, you can see out there, I've got this huge gum tree right there, right? Yeah. So, and this huge gum tree. And um, that, that gum tree, gum trees naturally drop limbs. It's, it's actually really, it crushed my stepdaughter's car a few months ago, which was difficult. So they get stressed and they go, see you later. And they'll let go of a tree limb sort of its own self-preservation. It's pretty remarkable, actually, but they call them a silent killer that way. It's, it can be really dangerous. You don't camp under a gum tree. But I have no idea. That gum tree is 
clearly very old. Was it a sacred tree? Was it, what did that tree mean to the people who lived here before my house was plopped down and this is where I was, you know, when I moved here, this is where I live. Um, we have a cave like uh, 30 minutes up the road, a beautiful cave. That was a women's, that's for women's business, a, a cave to give birth. Wow. And I think actually the stories of our land where we all live come to life when we really learn about the, the people whose lands this was. Um, another good example is Australia's um, coastline was about 20 kilometers further out than where it is now. So even when you're swimming at the beach, you're swimming over footsteps. Who knows what's underneath you and what happens? And so bringing the, the, the stories of where we are, it changes the way we walk when we're outside. It changes the way we think about the outdoors. And I am not an indigenous person, nor do I you know, claim to, to understand their knowledge. But coming to Australia where we, we sort of teach about you know, we, we have indigenous elders work at our university and teach, try to teach us about connection to the country that there is for, for, for the people that I've listened to on my campus there, there is no happy people on an unhealthy climate. And so if, if I think we can really amplify how we help youth recognize that, that when we fence things off, when we, when we say what's ours and not yours, and when we don't think of the natural world as a place, not only for mental health prevention and help, you know, we didn't even get into physical activity as, as a preventative measure for our own well-being. Um, you know, even, even vitamin D, vitamin C, all these things that we can, we can get from all this, all this wonderful stuff. It's, I do think it's incredible to, to take time to really learn who are the traditional owners of where you are? How can I meet them? And how can I support that community with the privilege that I have to do that? Because um, I know in, in the United States and in Australia and in Canada, we also have a third world country um, where we have put the people whose lands we've taken from them. And, and, um, and uh, uh, you know, we, we give them pennies for, for, for yeah. what has happened. And yeah. I think it really starts with acknowledging this and acknowledging that um, when, we, when we have that acknowledgement of when we're going outside, we're not using nature, we're, we're, we're being with it. And when we think about that, that human nature kinship, I think it changes the way we go outside. Oh, and I know we have to wrap up. I'll end with a funny story here. My, my, and cause this is, it kind of goes full circle. My wife and I went to Tasmania for the first time, uh, probably two Novembers ago. And we go on this hike, beautiful hike in Freycinet National Park. And we, we, you get to this beach called Hazards Beach, stunning. And we're, it's about, there's a, a boardwalk and a, a three story staircase down to the beach. And there's these piles of shells at the top of the staircase. And my wife said, this is weird. Do you think the, the tide comes up this high? It's a very flat beach, like not big waves. And I said, no, Renee, the tide does not come up this high. And she said, really? Where's your tide chart, smart ass? Right? <laughs> and so I was like, wait, you're right. Why would I even pretend I know anything about this beach? Oddly enough, when we got back to the the, the parking lot where we parked to do this loop trail, 
there's all this information about Hazard's Beach, and it says, like, did you see the shells? Those are old, what are called middens. It's basically an indigenous trash pile because they ate shellfish and oysters. And there's old stories of when um, the colonists came, there were there's a matriarch society and there were women that could hold their breath for seven minutes to dive and get oysters. And so there's these piles of shells that you would walk right past if you didn't know that story. And you'd think, is this the tide? No, it's like even more unnatural. It's people. It's their story from thousands of years. And oddly enough, I took my mom back there just last week and I, and I did that walk again. And we were the way it changes what you're looking at, you know, it changes how you're going. This was someone's home. Yeah, there were people here, and as a Marylander, these kind of look like the crab boils that we have. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's, it's 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 amazing how your view of the natural environment changes from a beautiful place to have a sense of wonder to also a sense of history that there's amazing cultural history and, and, you know, um, archeological history and anthropological, it's incredible. And I think sometimes when we think about that, that, that idea of the natural world, we can also not think about it as something for us to use, but, but as a place that is so rich of history and context. And, you know, that's where I say, I have this huge, amazing tree that's a giant pain in the ass that might have been a very important tree to somebody else. You never know. Yeah, well, I think sharing those stories is absolutely important for fostering that nature kinship. And, you know, I said that Kansas is 98% private land, but I do have a little park near me. It's only 165 acres. It's got about two miles of trails. But out here in Kansas, this park, what I've learned about it was it was an area where you... Like I do live on uh, stolen lands. My university is on stolen lands. There's a burial mound at the top of this, this little park there. It's called Mount Mitchell Heritage Prairie. And it's got a little burial mound on the top where some indigenous people had a burial site. Also the underground railroad ran through the area out in Kansas. I didn't know the underground railroad came that far west. Um, But I think going back to everything you're saying in order for it's humans need to be adapting to what we have, you know, the way that in a lot of cultures, not every culture, but especially the American culture um, has looked Mm. at the use of land. And that's going to be something that's going to be, that needs to change. And one way to do it is through sharing those stories, uh, getting Mm. people to foster that nature kinship. It's really important. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Well, Will, this has been an amazing conversation. We've been going for about 90 minutes, and I could double this easily. I could easily double this. we got a lot in common. It's been really cool to connect. I mean, we connected on email before this. Um, And Mm. on top of that, on top of just our connection, um, I want to thank you for bringing so much knowledge. I mean, I was was amazed at how easy you were able to just riddle stuff off. I'm like, this guy's got a (laughs) lot of experience. And, I mean, that type of, like, just – talking like that that comes from like you you've been doing this work for a while and like i said in the introduction almost two decades and you're just you know Mm. full of experiences so hey thanks for connecting um i know that it's probably what um 7 a.m or 
945, there you go. 945 a.m. on the next day forward. Uh, so I'm, I'm in the nighttime behind. Um, now, I, I feel bad that um, I'm going to put on some outro music here to conclude the episode. Now, I wish I had some minor threats specifically or some punk rock to put on, but uh, I don't. I'm going to put on the same as the intro music because that's what I have. Um, but gosh, hey, well, the other thing I want to say thanks to was I've had a lot of fun. So thank you. Yeah, no, it's I, I, I love the um, the my friend in Norway who unfortunately passed away during COVID. He uh, my buddy life. He said to me. Uh, you know, my motto is like Google, share everything. So I don't know if we covered enough about adventure therapy or the outdoors, but we certainly shared a lot. And so that is always a treat. Yeah, yeah. Well, you shared a lot. <laughs> and I tried to, I tried to keep up. <laughs> I tried to keep up. Thank you so much. All right. You're welcome. I'm going to throw on that outro music. <laughs>